Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and I am joined on Zoom today by Peter Cat and Sue Grimmett, uh, as always. Thanks for jumping in, guys. Hey there. Our pleasure. And uh, look, today's guest is going to excite many of our listeners, I think. He's a, a man whose work has just been so profoundly instrumental in, in this space. He's the author of so many brilliant books, such as Let Your Life Speak, the Courage to Teach, and uh, most recently, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. It is, uh, it's an honor, really, to welcome Parker Palmer to the podcast. Parker, thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you, Dom, and, uh, and Peter and Sue as well. It's a delight to be here. Look, there's so much we're hoping to explore in our uh, time together today, um, weaving through a great deal of, of your work over the years. But before we get to to any of that, you are someone who'd be very uh, known to, to many of our listeners, I'm sure. And I believe that we are talking to you just a couple of days before your 83rd birthday. Is is that right? Well, that's that's true. Your intelligence agency is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought maybe we'd start by just asking how, how is life for you at the moment and um and what's what's this 83rd celebration going to look like? Well, it's going to be a very quiet celebration with my wife and uh, our granddaughter, 30-year-old granddaughter, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I've been promised cherry pie, uh, which, <laughs> which in my mind equals love, so it'll, it'll be good. Um, 83, uh, I feel so lucky to have reached this age. Uh, so many people on our planet never get there, um, but I've had that privilege and that good fortune. And, you know, my constant desire uh, is to make the very best use of the gift of life that I know how to make. Um, and um, not let age get in the way of that. Um, in, in my recent book on aging, On the Brink of Everything, I, th I think I say something about age is just another word for, or old is just another word for nothing left to lose. Mm. So, so get out there and take some risks for the common good. And I feel very much that way these days, full of gratitude and uh, full of piss and vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful well look happy birthday for a few days time um then and, and uh it's we're the ones getting the gift today um with this conversation look there is um i suppose there's a few threads we're, we're hoping to to explore today through your work maybe the, the common theme of them is the way in which you have uh always centered your work i guess on the inner life um and on the the, the true self I'm just curious, as you reflect back, uh, you know, because you, you've been writing about the inner life in, in one form or another for, for decades, really. Do, do you see, as you reflect back on your journey, a, a key point where where that path, that inner path, substantially became um, became real in your life? Well, thanks, uh, Dom. It's a, it's a good question for me to ponder. So... Um, I guess I would say that the red thread running through a lot of my work has to do with the relation, the co-creation of the inner and outer life. Mm. And I can tell you a bit about how that came about. I, I did a PhD at Berkeley in the 1960s, which of course was a time of great social movements and social transformation. Um, I did the degree thinking that I would end up in academia as a professor. But by 1969, when I finished my academic work, um, 
My heroes had been assassinated. Um, the Vietnam War was raging. The cities were burning um, due to America's ongoing and ever unfinished reckoning with racial justice. And um, it seemed to me that I needed to use the sociology I had learned in the streets rather than the classroom. So I went to Washington, DC, and I became a community organizer working on issues of racial justice uh, at, on, in, in an area called Tacoma Park East Silver Spring, right on the edge of the District of Columbia. A rapidly changing area, the job was to stabilize the community and to avoid such racial racist evils as redlining and blockbusting, uh, the things that destroy communities and simply create new ghettos for everyone. So we worked. I worked away at that for five years, uh, based in a coalition of congregations, uh, Catholic, Protestant, Seventh Day Adventist in that case as well, and and a couple of Jewish uh, congregations as well. And it was a rich and, and rewarding work, but it was also a deeply demanding work. And I, after five years, I burned out. And that took me for what I thought was going to be a year of R&R &R, uh, at, at a Quaker living learning community near Philadelphia called Pendle Hill, uh, where we lived a, a profoundly communal life together, about 80 people sharing meals and doing physical work and studying uh, the, both the inner life and its outer expression in nonviolence. Um, but the inner life came onto my radar uh, at that point because I realized that it was the lack of a rich and sustaining inner life that had led me to burn out at external work in the world that I really, really valued. Hmm. I didn't want to have to give up that kind of work going forward. I've, I've always had a part of my life that has been, been, been activist in nature, and I wanted to maintain that around issues of great moment and issues of, of love, truth, and justice in action. And so it became rather imperative for me to explore inner life questions as they relate to our lives in the world. And the Quakers were, uh, for me, the, the place just right to do that uh, because they've really majored historically in what it means to move toward the outer world from your inner life, from your beliefs, your convictions, from that of God in every person, as Quakers say, the indwelling Christ, the inner light, and to manifest that in the world of, of action, and then to deal with what the world throws back at you mm. in a way that allows you to continue that creative, nonviolent engagement, rather than to deform you, which is often what the world is trying to do. So I guess that's the best sort of nutshell I can provide to say that it's always for me been about the relation of the inner and outer life, not only in, in, in uh, social act activism, mm. but also in 
education, in the law, in medicine, in leadership, and in all kinds of other fields that um, get get treated in, in certain respects by a nonprofit I founded called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which also has uh, uh, branches in Australia that we're very, very proud of. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You write about this. Well, you've written about this extensively over the journey. Um, in your latest book, uh, On the Brink of Everything, you you do write uh, in a few different reflections about how the um, the lack of a nurtured inner life has resulted in a lot of the violence we see. And I think one of your um one of your great quotes. I was joking with Sue. We had a phone call yesterday before this podcast, just chatting about it a little bit. And I, I think I made the joke that um that I feel like we could just sit here for an hour and read out some of your quotes, Parker, because you are you are one of the most quotable people I think um I've ever read. Some of them are just outstanding. But but one of your one of my favorite quotes of yours. Um, is that violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. And um, and I think that idea of when you look at the violence that is done politically, um, when you look at the violence that is done on a military front, the violence that is done relationally, um, you, you so beautifully illustrate that this is all coming out of an inner life that is not nurtured, that is not not developed. It, the, I suppose the, the question that comes to mind for me is how do you think we got here um, you know, to be such a, a disconnected culture from our inner life. And is there any way on mass to bring people back into this space? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that question. And I wish you hadn't asked it. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a humongous question that uh, it'll, it'll be fun to grope around for answers between us. But you know, I think the first thing to be said is that there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, like all of you, I guess like all of you, at least in your current engagement, I was raised in a branch of the Christian tradition where where the question of suffering was right at the heart of the whole enterprise. Mm. Uh, and the question of what are the redemptive uses of suffering was right at the heart of the whole enterprise. Um, you know, at the core of most of the world religions is a set of questions and responses to what can we do with our suffering other than beat each other up? Um, and so it's not a phenomenon of the modern world, strictly so. But I do believe it's true that historically uh, we have grown away from the inner life uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, I, I once read a serious academic essay that attributed the first movement away from the inner life to coffee, to the widespread use of coffee, <laughs> which, which jazzes us up <laughs> and kind of prevents the Lexio Divina and all of its kin from ever happening wow. with us. But, but it's, it's also true that the rise of science and then of industrialization, um, the externalization of life in all those forms where the only important stuff is to be, is, is the stuff outside of our heads that we can touch and feel and smell and measure and weigh and taste. And, and that has the possibility of being empirically demonstrable. That's the only stuff that's important. The other is just, you know, fantasy, wish, dream, whatever. 
which is a horrific uh, mistake. I mean, for, for the philosophers among us, it's a horrific epistemological mistake, for one thing. That's just not how the human being works. That's, that's what we know, what we think we know. Science itself is a very intricate blend of inwardly held presumptions and assumptions and outwardly practiced shared disciplines. So it's a terrible distortion to even imagine that there's a radical distinction between the inner and the outer and that the inner is negligible while the outer holds holds all the aces. Um, that, that's just wrong. That's just flat out wrong. And it's it's led, you know, some people have called this the objectification of the world. And objectification leads to evils. How else do you end up, you know, killing in, in, in under the Nazi regime, uh, 15 million human beings, uh, over half of them Jews, others homosexuals and uh, gypsies, and folks who didn't fit the Aryan model in whatever shape, form, or fashion. How else do you end up doing mass murder in any situation except by making people into objects? Um, how else do you end up with the kind of abusive, brutalized politics that we have in this country today, except by making people into objects? So, you know, there's there are serious uh, issues, to say the obvious, at stake here that have been that are of a long term nature in human experience. And um, the, the question of is is kind of mass conversion possible? Uh, I, I think the answer is no, hmm. because there is so, the, the, defor, the deformations around all of this are so profound. But I also don't think it takes 95% to create a, a transformation in human history. Um, I'm old enough to have lived through one transformation of significant measure around social justice um, in the mid 20th century, the, the civil rights movement, which was really the expression in that time of a black liberation movement that began the first day that a slave ship hit the shore of this country uh, back in the 17th century. Um, that uh, a civil rights movement in the mid 20th century that transformed the lay and the law of the land, literally the lay and the law of the land. Studies have indicated that, that something like 5% of the American population were actively engaged with that movement. And that 5% found an Archimedean lever on change that was significant and that whose impact we continue to feel today, even as some are in this country are trying to reverse the outcomes of that revolution. So, you know, I, I'm a great believer in the idea of the church as a salvific remnant. I, I don't think the deal is to get everybody into the walls of the church or really into inside of any other religious institution or community. I think the deal is compelling witness in the larger world on behalf, as practiced by a remnant people, 
who, who show in their choices and in their actions that they really mean it. Mm -hmm. and just, just think of, of all the theology that Christians have generated over the years. If we really meant it um, and we witnessed to really meaning it in the world, um, we, we would become, we would start establishing one of those Archimedean po points for change. Um, and not that we haven't over the centuries, but it's been a mixed bag. I think all of us would confess. Um, so, so it's, it's it, my, my thinking about, about social change is, is necessarily more modest, partly, partly because the facts sustain that and partly because that's what's within reach. And, and I think if we start talking about stuff that is out of reach of ordinary human beings like you and me, um, that's just that's when we just lose our audience. I'll just say one more word, or, or, or I think we lose our credibility to, to put it more significantly. Um, one more word down. Um, when I was in theological seminary for a year before God told me to get out, um, I, um, I, I learned about an ancient historian named Tertullian who wrote about the impact of the early church, of, of early, the earliest for, organized forms of Christianity. And I remember that he said something that made a huge impression on me about how the church began to transform the culture and society of that time, remembering that the culture and society of that time was, was characterized by the fact that if you were a stranger in a strange land, that's all it took to qualify you for murder. Uh, strangers, you know, we've never, we human beings have never welcomed strangers uh, well. Um, and there have been eras of history where like inner city gangs, you just don't want to be caught on the wrong block or, or you're finished. Tertullian said in the early church, people would look in on the life of a congregation which had brought strangers together and they would say one thing about what they saw, see how they love one another, see how they love one another. That, that according to Tertullian was what, what sparked a revolution in consciousness. If you see love in action among real people in real space and time, it's impossible ever again to write that off as a pipe dream that's a nice thing to talk about, but can never be achieved. You know, once you've seen it, it's real. And you have to start saying to yourself, well, if it's not real in this moment with in this situation that I'm in, how can I help establish the conditions where it could become real? And, and I think that that should be a way that we all, all who are involved in religious community, think about uh, mission in our time. Yeah, 
No, that's wonderful. And your your work on on what community can look like or should look like in that space um, has been so helpful. I know uh, this quote um, in one form or another I've heard in numerous places, but you, you do write. Uh, in true community, we will not choose our companions, for our choices are so often limited by self-serving motives. Instead, our companions will be given to us by grace. Often they will be persons who will upset our settled view of self and world. In fact, I love this, uh, we might define true community as that place where the person you least want to live with lives. Um, <laughs> which is a very challenging quote, but I, I, I suppose articulates that sense of... that. That's a very a different way to how most of us live in that. Um, and I know Jesus said a couple of things about this, about how it is easy to love the people who are your friends and who you're close with. But there is something about this, this more rigorous um, commitment to a love where nobody will be left behind and nobody will be left out that when you see it, it, it does feel quite transcendent in a sense. Have you, ha, do you feel you've belonged to communities like that a number of times in your life, Parker? Well, I think that one of the gifts of this community near Philadelphia that I referred to called Pendle Hill, where 80 people lived this very close communal life together. And I stayed there not just for the R&R sabbatical that mm -hmm. I thought I was taking. I stayed there for 10 more years as dean of studies at this adult study center. So I had a deep immersion in really what was a, a kind of secular monasticism. Um, or an ashram or a kibbutz or a commune, uh, you know, formed by Quaker faith and practice um, and uh, tr the traditions of Quakerism. Um, and, and, it, it, and it was a crucible experience. I mean, you, you know, you don't go through a daily life 365 days a year with 80 other people um, doing everything together, although there was plenty of space and time for solitude and for family life and all the other things we need. But you don't go through that without rubbing up against each other, sometimes in ways that uh, where the creative sparks fly and sometimes in, in ways that are hurtful, painful, destructive. Um, what I learned about, about that's behind the quote that you read, the last part of it, that community is that place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Uh, it was a true line, but a laugh line, because, and the laugh is obvious, but the, the truth of it is that in community, in true community, you're living so close to each other that there's always somebody on whom you're going to project the stuff you don't like about yourself. Mm. It's all projection. And, and because you can't walk away from that in community, the great gift is that you have a chance to withdraw those projections, to own what it is that you don't like about yourself, and to find some way to love it. If, if, if anything is guaranteed in life, it is that what we can't love about ourselves what we're ashamed of about ourselves, the, the, the unexamined shadow in ourselves is always going to be projected onto the other. That's the dynamic of enemy making. Mm. Ultimately, that's the dynamic of war. But if, if we live a face-to-face -face life, 
interpret that in whatever terms are reasonable for your situation. If we live a face-to-face -face life, we have a chance to say, oh, I see. In looking at this person whom I can barely stand to be around, I'm looking at a mirror to myself. Mm. Now the question becomes, how can I use what I see in that mirror to grow inwardly in self-acceptance and self-love that will translate into love for others? Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's not a random comment, right? That's that's a, 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 a there's a deep insight there about how love works in the world. And anything we can't come to terms with within ourselves is something we we'll never come to terms with in the world. Thomas Merton, one of my spiritual heroes, uh, did some brilliant writing around our inability to embrace the stranger within, the stranger within ourselves, which translates directly into animosity toward the stranger outside ourselves. Um, it, you know, it's a huge topic and it's one of the reasons that we have to be talking about self-love or at least self-care that, mm. that is partly rooted in self-love and can lead toward more self-love because self-care can also lead toward love extended to the larger world. I think one of the things that I wrote at some point that gets quoted a fair amount um, sometimes is uh, anything, whatever we can do to care for ourselves is not a selfish act. It's ultimately being done on behalf of those whose lives we come in contact with. Uh, and that's simply been experientially true in my life. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's a Carl Jung quote that anything that irritates us about another can lead us to a deeper understanding of ourselves, um, which I first came across a few years ago and resonated with me. And there is that, I, I suppose that when you're talking about community there and, and knowing yourself, nurturing the inner life, there is such a sense in which um, you're rubbing up against these people. They are daily invitations if we choose to take them into, into truth, into growth, into love. Um, I, I thought maybe uh, I might bring you in, Sue, because I know that you spent many years in the education system in schools and you've spoken about in that time um, how influential Parker's work was in, in helping you understand formation rather than indoctrination or even radicalization, as we've seen a bit in the world at the moment. Um, but I just thought maybe as we speak about the nurturing of the, the soul and of the self, um, maybe it would be worth exploring how you how that helped shape you in teaching and, um, and, and what that taught you about, I, I guess, community. Yes. Yeah. Um, Parker, your work was very influential on me as a teacher when I was lucky enough to stumble across it. And I think the, the thing with teaching, you can get all caught up in, in finding the perfect program in finding um, in, in developing strategies for um helping your students, teaching your students, and yet ignore yourself. And one thing I got involved in a little further down the track, probably in my 30s, uh, I was the National Values Education Project. In Australia, they had a big rollout where there was a lot of government funding thrown at it for values education. 
and I was coordinating, we won a grant and I was coordinating the project. And I was struck at how much your work was important in that context, because there was a whole lot of programs being shackled on for values education. And we spent three years and um, I find it a kind of, it was almost, you know, it was a beautiful move at the end that finally where we came to was it, the thing that mattered most was the person of the teacher. And we needed somehow that in all the results that came in, it was the person of the teacher and their capacity to do the inner work. And uh, I was, um, I went back to Courage to Teach a few times um, and I just, your work was very formative there. And I, I think, but it's not just about teaching, is it? It's, it's about in all of our interactions, in all spaces where we are seeking to help others, to build others up, we have to, first of all, address ourselves and and to to work with that inner self and that's an ongoing you know for for lifetime thing uh but how easy it is to focus on the externals and education is one of those areas that still i think becomes very directive um and is actually quite violent i think in the way that we can um impose what we believe students need to know what um how we think we could be shaped and we can be completely blind to the things that are pulling our own strings in that, you know, to the identities that we're we've absorbing from from culture or from our own pain and suffering sometimes, and I and oblivious to to how our own shame might project through what we desire for our students, and so in order, it became really clear that any curriculum, any pedagogy, you know, we it needs to first of all be addressing the self, um, and and bringing that in so that we can be our, our our true self and and try to nurture our students so that they can become not what we are imposing upon them but they can become their true self and um i, I thought at the end of the values education project that um possibly we could have shortcutted all that government funding in three years um if we'd leaned a little closer to your work so um it, it was it was quite a, a valuable thing mm. Well, well, thank you, Sue. I appreciate those comments a lot. And I certainly recognize the, the scene you portrayed. You know, I think for me, um, I, as I set out on a teaching career, um, I abandoned academia, but I didn't abandon teaching. And I finally figured out that wherever I show up, I'm probably a teacher, first and foremost, even as a community organizer, that's what I was doing, was teaching. Um, I, I was, you know, constantly scanning the literature for around the question, how am I, how am I supposed to do this? What, what, what's good teaching about? And the answer that you so often get in the literature has to do with tips, tricks, and techniques, you know, the three T's. And I got to thinking about that just on the basis of my own experience of great teaching. And I realized there was no consistency of technique among the teachers that I regarded as great. It was a wild assortment of approaches, but what each of those teachers did, whether, whether they taught through brilliant lecturing or Socratic style with questions and answers or hands-on style with laboratory exercises or field experimentation, what each of those great teachers did was to bring himself or herself fully into the equation. They, they kind of became the loom that holds the threads of connection 
on which good teaching and learning depend. Connections between the teacher, the student, the subject, and the larger world. It's a complicated equation, and there is no one size that fits all. But good teachers, I concluded, have a capacity for connectedness. And if you can find a tip, trick, or technique that helps you use your own capacity for connectedness a little better, power to you. But it doesn't start with technique. It starts with selfhood mm-hmm. in your hands, you know. You, you know who you are, and you know how to deploy who you are in the, in the service of something good, of something worth doing. Um, in this case, in the service of students and in the service of the subject about which you care so much. I think we know all of this on a common sense level. You know, one of the familiar slogans among people who encourage teachers or physicians or leaders to go in this more personal direction is people will say, don't phone it in, show up, you know, don't phone it in, show up. Well, tech, borrowing a technique that is the, in, in this country at least, there's always a technique du jour, you know. <laughs> um, what, what, are they, what are they pitching this year? Hmm. Um, let, let's do that. Um, borrowing a technique is the equivalent of phoning it in. Show hmm. up, get engaged, in, you know, have a live encounter with your students and your subject. The teachers that changed my life, again, with a variety of methods, were all people who had live encounters with whatever they were doing. They didn't stand back at objective distance and just kind of lob uh, factoids in my direction. They brought me into a web of connections between myself, them, the subject, other students, and the larger world. So on one level, I think it just this just comes from common sense observation, but our world is full of uh, secrets in plain sight, isn't it? That, that bureaucracies and funding agencies systematically ignore because uh, it would it would humanize things in a dangerous manner. Yeah. What you're saying there cycles cycles back to the need to discover self-love. Um, because you actually have to trust yourself to enter into that space. Um, you know, I, I discovered your work when I was um, developing an interest in the catechumenal process, um, which in the early in the early nineties. Uh, and um, the, the reason I was interested in it was that the church was always in the programs, a bit like the stuff Sue's talking about with um, schools. So the church was always in the programs, and then there were fights about programs. So if you didn't like Alpha, you developed uh, an alternate to Alpha that operated on exactly the same model. It was just that you changed the doctrine. So you picked, picked the schema that actually met your particular form of ideology. So there was this competing... Uh, environment of ideological training and and poor souls who were stumbling into churches were just being put into a sausage machine and sort of um, squeezed out the other end and and it was accidental you know in terms of which church they had happened to um, 
enter. And the catechumenal process for me was a real liberation in that it was about attending to the person who turns up um, on the with the radical idea that actually God's been at work in their life and they might have something to teach us. You know, they, might, they actually bring some transformative presence into the into the community and in that way they're dangerous because every person who joins will transform the life of the community um, and uh, so i discovered your work which was all about doing the inner work so that you could actually be present to them and you were prepared to take the risk because you didn't have the safety net of the indoctrinational um, uh, fabric to give to people um, and here in Australia, uh, the catechumenal um, process actually began to collapse when someone codified it. I remember going to a catechumenal conference in Brisbane, of all places, um, long before I lived here, and they were all very excited because some guru had visited from the United States and had codified the catechumenal process. And so there was another system um, to impose, and the catechumenal process began to drift away because it became another program amongst programs. But at its heart, it really is the fact that um, we have trouble trusting ourselves because we have trouble loving ourselves, and we don't allow ourselves, therefore, to be truly present. And you can hide behind some mask of being alpha provider or a credo provider or whatever else. Um, so I think your work continually reminds me that I have to do the internal work so I can be present to the people who present themselves to us and be transformed by that presence. Well, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Again, I recognize that scene fully. I also recognize that beware of visiting Americans is a good principle. In <laughs> <laughs> a country full of would-be gurus who <laughs> learning how to market it. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think I loved your comment, Peter, about um, the radical assumption that, that God might have, have worked mm -hmm. in these people's lives as they, uh, as they come into the formation process. Um, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's also critical that a teacher in any setting make the radical assumption that his or her students might know something. Mm. Uh, and and not only might they know something, but if we can access that something, they're much more likely to be able to connect their world of knowing to the new dimension of knowing that we would like to open the door to in in their lives. Um, you know, knowledge builds on knowledge, and if you can't connect with the student's condition, if you can't connect with the kind of knowing that he or she engages in, as well as the kind of knowledge that he or she has accumulated. Good luck in connecting them with whatever it is you're doing. Um, it's just less likely to happen. Um, it, there's so much here that's about relational trust, to use a term that gets bandied about in this country a lot. And it's a powerful factor that relational trust drives all kinds of enterprises, including teaching and learning. And we need to learn to, to cultivate it, especially at a time when um, distrust seems to be, you know, the attitude of the day. Mm. It, it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the common theme in all of 
uh, this conversation is that idea of the the inner life and self love and how these things practiced can allow us to then um, be fully present and, and show up, as you say, Parker, rather than phoning it in. It is interesting. I, I notice um, in culture at the moment that self love and self care have, in recent years, kind of become a little bit buzzwordy, but they're often spoken about. It, without wanting to be too harsh about it in, in something of a shallow way that the idea of the extent of self-love or self-care is, well, I've had a rough week, so I'm ordering myself a pizza and putting a movie on That's self-love. And, and I'm not saying it isn't self-love, but there's a, there is, there's probably not the kind of self-love that's going to lead to a transformative experience of life. Um, there is a, a rigor to, to this path of, of inner work. And that's no more obvious. I, I think then when you write about your experiences of depression, um, your three major experiences of depression and um, the most intense periods of inner work and, and the inner life that you've journeyed through, I was just wondering if you could share your perspective on that with us because I know it's something that's been so helpful for, for so many people is, is um, how you were able to make sense of those times of your life. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. And, and in fact, the, the very answer to your question is in the sharing of the experience. When something as devastating as three deep dives into clinical depression happens to you, you, you emerge with the question, how can I make meaning out of this apparently meaningless experience in my life? Because, and, and you know, you can't, you know, please capitalize and underline the word meaningless because you're at a point in the depths of depression where each day you're wondering if it's time to end it all. The misery is, is so profound. Um, and so you come out of that saying, that was meaningless, I guess, unless I can find some way to make meaning out of it. And one way I found to make meaning after a while was to share the experience in service of the millions and millions of people around the world who suffer from depression and the millions who suffer from <clears throat> living with <clears throat> someone they dearly love uh, who seems to be at death's door on a regular basis. Um, and, it, there, you know, nobody has the answer to depression. Um, there, there's, there's no drug that cures it. There are drugs that can help alleviate it. Um, and some people need to be on those drugs for the rest of their lives. And if that's what it takes, you know, please do it. Um, there are others, depressions that are more situational or episodic um, that don't require long-term drug maintenance. Uh, talk therapy can help a lot in, in all of those cases. But the, the, the primary thing we need to do is is to not double down on the isolation of depression by allowing ourselves and each other to imagine I'm the only person who's, who's got this terrible, terrible condition. I'm the only person who's isolated. Everybody else looks like they're in on the joke, in on the game. I'm not. And that sense of isolation, as we've learned during the pandemic, has really serious health consequences, mental and physical health consequences, the loneliness that comes from that, the sense of being an atom floating free in the void with, with no anchor, no connectedness to anyone or anything. And so telling the story and, and saying, in effect, just by telling the story, I was there, it's horrific, uh, I can, tell you in chapter and verse how horrific it 
was. Um, but I survived and now again, I thrive. Um, I understand a lot that probably the people around you don't understand. I mean, one of the things I've often said about depression is people walk around saying to themselves, I cannot understand why so-and-so took his own life, right? Um, and I've always said, well, I can understand it because they did it because they needed the rest. Depression is an absolutely exhausting experience, an absolutely crushing experience. You have no sense of self left. So why not end it all? If you want a mystery to ponder, why is it that some people survive and thrive? That's the true mystery to me, having, having been there. But I will, there's a lot to say about this um, that, uh, because it's so complicated and it's instil, still in many ways so opaque. I think any good psychiatrist will say, there's just a lot we don't know about this mental illness um, and the proclivity for it and so forth and so on. But one thing that helps is, is realizing you're not alone, realizing that you have companions walking in the dark with you, you know, realizing at the, at the end of the road, as I like to say to people after we've journeyed with each other on, on, on this, and I've journeyed with a bunch of people ever since I wrote about it 20 years ago. I like to be able to say, welcome to the human race. You know, what has happened to you is not shameful. It's not failure. It's, it's a really difficult life experience that a lot of people uh, go through. And if we can embrace the fact that we are really all in this together, um, it, we're, we're going to feel more sense of companionship uh, on the road. You know, I, in the Christian tradition in which I was raised, it's often said, well, God doesn't fix our problems, but God walks with us. You know, God can't prevent the loved one in your life from dying, but God can walk with you in the grief. And that walking with often gets incarnated in other people who represent the love of God to you on that, on that journey. So, you know, for me, um, there's, there's so many rich lessons um, of, of, of the experience, rich spiritual lessons, which are totally unavailable to you at the time you're in the experience. Mm. It's, it's just the dark night of the soul. It's the, all the light is extinguished. I used to say that depression is like being lost in the dark, but at its depths, it's more like becoming the dark. And, and that's a different thing. That's a different image. If you're, if you're just lost in the dark, you can still grope around and maybe find a, a window latch or a shade to raise or a door handle that promises some kind of exit or at least figure out the space you're in because there's a difference between you and the darkness. But if you become the dark, there's no way to negotiate it. Um, it, it, it all hope is gone. Um, 
in, in my case, there were just these rare moments when I would sense a little tiny, tiny, tiny spark of life as if I had spotted, as if I were in the wilderness and I had spotted a movement way back in the brush that suggested a creature is there. Uh, some form of life is there. Um, that's where I came up with the notion of the shy soul. Yeah, yeah. Who, who doesn't, who won't come just because we shout for it to come out. That will, in fact, scare it away. But if we sit, wait quietly, blend in with the wilderness, don't disturb it, uh, it may eventually put in a little bit of an appearance. We may only catch it out of the corner of our eye, but that will be enough to keep us going another day. Um, so, you know, rich, rich experience, but only accessible afterwards. And I'll just say one more thing for those who, who may be holding this experience and wondering about sharing it. It took me 10 years after my first experience of depression to share it in speaking and writing. And the reason it took so long was that I, I, I had this really deep instinct that I needed to integrate that devastating experience so deeply into my sense of self that I could stand before people at a podium or on the printed page saying, yes, I'm all of the above. You know, I am my gifts and my strengths. I am the light I possess. And I am this descent into utter darkness where there is no God, no you, no me, no nothing. Um, and in between, I'm all the things I've failed at as well as all the things I've succeeded at. I'm, as we say here in Wisconsin, I'm the whole kielbasa. You know, I, I, am, also, I am all of the above. And, and so be patient with yourself. Love yourself enough to not go public with this until you feel confident that, you, that it is a well-integrated part of your sense of who you are. And that has a lot to do with, with uh, the journey toward selfhood that we were talking about earlier, I think. And it's a journey we're all on all the time. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's not one and done. Um, Thomas Merton once said, we are called as Christians to give our hearts away, but first we must have our hearts in our own possession to give. And I, I think this, this claiming and reclaiming of selfhood fits rather nicely into that wise observation. Uh, I know when, when you do write about it, and, and thank you for, for sharing that, um, Firstly, but I know when you when you have written about this, you speak about uh, some work. I think it was with a, a therapist potentially um, about reviewing your depression as encounters with the true self. Um, it, it's such a beautiful, you know. And again, it, I'm, I'm sure it's not meaning that was entirely available to you in the midst of the the bleak winter. Um, but it is such a beautiful uh, understanding of uh, the true self and the desire for the true self to to emerge and to be known. Could you share that, that interpretation? Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you for, for that reminder. So I sought talk therapy in the middle of a couple of my depressions and it was very helpful. 
this one man, after listening to me for a number of sessions, and he was a very good listener and question asker, uh, never trying to fix me, but sometimes mirroring back what he saw. He finally said, Parker, you seem to image your depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you into the, into, into the ground. And that was, that was an, accu an accurate mirroring. That's exactly how it felt. Like I'm under this oppressive weight. And if I yield to it, it will destroy me. It will pulverize me. But he said, would it be possible for you to begin trying to image this experience as the hand of a friend trying to press you down to safe ground on which to stand? Well, that didn't work miracles immediately, but over time, it became an operative image for me. And I realized uh, through that image that I had been living at elevation, an elevation that was well above safe ground on which to stand. You know, I think about Paul Tillich saying, God is the ground of our being. Well, that's safe ground on which to stand. But if you're living at elevation as I was, maybe in your intellect, trying to think everything away, or in your ego, you know, I'm, I'm too good for this. Um, or, or in your spirituality, the kind of up, up, and away spirituality, or in your ethic, you know, this is what I ought to be doing with my life. There are so many ways of living at elevation from the ground of our being. So if you're living at elevation in any of those ways, and you trip and fall, which we do, I do anyway, on a pretty regular basis, you have a long, long way to fall and you're likely to get badly hurt. It may kill you. But if you're on the ground and you trip and fall, we all know what you do. You groan, then you get up and dust yourself off and take a next step. And the next day you trip again. And you go through, it's, it's you know, rinse and repeat, this cycle of life. Um, and that was a huge image for me. Keep it on the ground, Parker. Um, yes, of course, use your mind. Yes, of course, reflect on your ethics. Yes, of course, don't lose the ego strength necessary to live just an ordinary life. Um, you know, yes, of course, explore spirituality, but understand that the direction of spirituality is to the ground of our being, mm. not to a hot air balloon in which we can escape, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, this deadly earth. So that was huge for me, Dom, and, and I thank you for uh, yeah. evoking the memory of that moment. Well, it's an interesting point about living at elevation. It does make me think about how often we see celebrities are the ones who have the most dramatic meltdowns because they are living at such elevation that when maybe they stumble, there is a long, long way to fall. Um, which... the, air is, the air is really hard to breathe up there. It does not sustain <laughs> human life. Um, uh, just uh, one more on, on this thing before we move to wrapping up the, the conversation. I, I, you speak about the true self that has been trying to get your attention your whole life as a character on the street and you not listening. Um, could, would you be happy to share that, that story? Because I love that, that insight. It's a beautiful one. Sure. Again, thank you. Yeah. 
Well, I finally came to understand, uh, partly through the help of that therapist, that for a long time, my life <clears throat> had been as if I was walking down the street and a voice a block or two away was calling my name faintly, but I heard it. And yet I walked on. And so that person, if you imagine the, the scene portrayed, hastens his step a little, gets closer, calls my name louder. I still walk on. They get closer still to the point where maybe they can throw a pebble at me and then a larger stone. It, it hits me in the back, but I walk on. Uh, then they get close enough to swing with a stick or punch me. <laughs> and I keep going without turning around. They're finally going to do what? Well, drop some sort of bomb on my head to, to, to get what they want, which is my attention. All I ever, ever had to do was to turn around and say, what? <laughs> do you have a message for me? But I was scared to do that. I was, I was scared of my own life. I was scared of my own shadow. However you want to name it, I knew that I'd have to confront something if I turned around and said, what do you want? Um, but somehow the answer all along was to do exactly that. And if you can ask that question, what do you want of that character, which is also a side of you, and you can be open to the answer, you're probably going to learn something that will help save or heal your life. Because the shadow side <clears throat> that needs our attention is, is full of important information that we need to live as whole human beings, even, even though, or maybe especially because it comes from the shadow, it comes from those parts of our life that we don't want to confront, those parts that we don't recognize, those parts that we don't uh, even grant reality to, the very same parts that we project onto other people in making enemies and seeing strangers as a threat to who we are. So it all comes full circle that way. We started out talking about the relation of the inner and the outer. And I see turning around and saying, what do you want? As a way of helping to rectify um, my own inner workings to, to bring them new health and of helping me to write my relationships in the external world um, with all of its problems and challenges and demands. So mm. we could go on and on about that, but maybe <laughs> I need to lay it down there. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it, it um, reminds me of a, a phrase you've used on a few different occasions that there are two different ways the heart can break. Um, it can break open or it can break apart. Um, and I suppose that that sums up what you're saying there, that, that the thing that's scaring you, the thing that feels like it's lingering over you, that ghost you don't want to turn and face, if you do decide, if you let yourself turn and face it, and I'm obviously not for one second um, pretending that that's easier than, than it is, 
Um, but if you can find a way to do that, the heart can break open um, in a beautiful way in time rather than into, into shards. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the brittle heart, the tight heart that doesn't get exercised <clears throat> in its own humanity that under stress will explode into a thousand shards and sometimes get hurled like a fragment grenade at the ostensible source of its pain. There's a lot of that going around. But the other way for the heart to break, the supple heart, the heart that's been exercised in the way ordinary life gives us daily opportunities to exercise our hearts, that heart, that supple heart can, can break open into new capacity, into a largeness of love. You see it happen all the time in people who've lost that person dearest in their lives and go into a long underground period of mourning, feeling that life will never be the same, but gradually emerge into a sense that not in spite of the loss, but because of the loss, they've become bigger people. They've become more generous, more welcoming, uh, more open to the varieties of life and to co-creating whatever is possible with life itself. And I, I'll, I'll wrap it up in this context, Dom, by saying that I think that image first came to me from the very heart of the Christian tradition in which I was raised in the Methodist church. We didn't, unlike a Catholic church, we didn't have Christ hanging on the cross at the, at the head of the sanctuary, at the front of the sanctuary. But that image of what in historic, historical terms has been called the sacred heart, I think lived in the stories that we told and in our understanding of what a, a cruciform life was all about the arms stretch you out left and right, up and down. But in the middle, it's this heart opening to the world that is the core of that message. Um, it's, it's not the suffering of the cross, but the redemptive possibilities of a cruciform life, which you know, I think we're all called to live. I mean, it, it's there in the, in the structure of life itself. The question is, what meaning are we going to make of it? Are we going to open our hearts to sharing our experience in fellowship with others and service of others and in our in our in our own way become part of this community of redemptive possibilities that kind of merges the visible and invisible worlds uh, into the one into one yeah that's so beautiful and that to me that's um that's the best self-love or self-care that there is, is to, is to go into that, that heart space. And yes, maybe order yourself a pizza and put a movie on as well, but, uh, but going yeah. into that heart space is, um, yeah, I, I suppose that's where the luxury of enemies kind of dissolves and, and this vision um, enlargens in a whole new way. Well, Parker, this has well, been such a, a gift to share this conversation. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Well, thanks. Thanks to all of you, Sue and Dom and, and Peter. And I'll just mention that it's close to dinner time here. So you now have my mouth watering for pizza. <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe, 
Maybe I'll stream a movie tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful. Parker, thank you so much, not just for making time today, but for all of your work. Um, mm. It has been just so profoundly helpful for, for us and for, for so many others. We're so grateful. Well, thank you. Blessings to all. Thank you. Thanks so much.